As we heard earlier, today we are starting an evangelism class to help train and equip us all to share the gospel, to share the good news. And I encourage you to attend the class, even if you don't regularly attend Sunday school. This is, we think, an important initiative for the life and the future of the church. And as it happens, in God's good providence, our text this morning from Acts chapter 10 speaks directly and simply to the evangelistic task. This is a simple, straightforward text. At no point this morning will you be bewildered by this sermon. I hear rumors that that occasionally happens. So today is, as seen in the bulletin, the annual uh, commemoration of the baptism of Jesus. And this text, it turns out, also in God's good providence, is the New Testament reading for today. Because it mentions our Lord's anointing with the Spirit, which took place at His baptism. And so... What we see in this text from Acts 10 is what that anointing meant for Jesus' own life and ministry and for the future course of the gospel and really what it means for our own task in the fellowship or in the partnership of the gospel. Jesus' baptism was his ordination his consecration as Israel's Messiah, and thus also as Savior of the world. And we, you, who are baptized into Christ, are baptized into his mission. It's important to see that. If you're baptized into Jesus, you're baptized into his mission. So we'll make three points, the mission field, the message, the missionaries. They're in the back, inside page of the bulletin. So, so first, the, the mission field. Peter is addressing, the Apostle Peter is addressing his first Gentile audience. He's already had that famous vision of the sheet of animals descending with clean and unclean animals on it, right, where he's told, arise and eat. And Peter, right, being a good Torah-fearing, observant Jew, you know, is objects to this. Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. And he's told not to call unclean what God has made clean. Right? He's then sent forward. He's now come to Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman centurion who's gathered some of his relatives and his friends to hear what Peter has to say. And so at the beginning of the text, this is Acts 10, verse 34, Peter begins and he says, I now realize, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism or partiality. But here, the idea is that God's attitude towards people in the gospel is not determined, it's not determined by any external criteria, whether it's race, accident of race, or religious background, or social standing, or class, or gender. Now, you take this for granted. But it was a disruptive thing. Peter says, I now understand this. Because of this vision that he had. 
That vision of the clean and unclean animals where God makes clear to him that he's breaking down the distinction between clean and unclean, meaning between Jew and Gentile. Right? And so Peter's own Jewish sense of superiority toward the Gentiles and his own sort of natural suspicion of the Gentiles has now been divinely rebuked or corrected. And so centuries, centuries of religious prejudice fall with the revelation that God in Christ is no respecter of persons. That he accepts from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every language those who fear him and do what is right. The point, of course, is not that people are accepted on the basis of their own merit or goodness. Peter's going to call Cornelius and his whole audience to faith in Christ very soon. But the point is that Cornelius has no need to become a Jew. He does need, however, to become a Christian. So the point that Peter's making is that God gathers people. And he gathers them without partiality from every nation. Notice verse 36. The message was sent to the people of Israel. But it's about a Christ who the text says is Lord of all. Lord of Jew and Gentile. If you look further down in Acts 10 in verse 42... He is called the judge of all, the judge of the living and the dead. And later, in verse 43, the savior of all. Lord of all, judge of all, savior of all. Now, as I said, this is something we're accommodated to. It's become something maybe that we, we take for granted, but it is an explosion in the history of the world. It's a great disruption in Jewish history. And if you don't understand that, a lot of the New Testament will be bewildering to you. Because a good half of the New Testament is taken up with trying to figure out what this means. That people don't have to be circumcised. And don't have to keep the Torah. And don't have to follow the law of Moses. And that Gentiles have equal standing in this body with Jews without the entry rites and the purification rituals. It's impossible to grasp what's going on without seeing how radical and revolutionary this is. The nations, the prophet said, will stream into Zion. But it turns out that they stream in because Zion streams out into the nations. right? Because Peter the Jew goes, leaves Jerusalem and goes to talk and share the gospel with Cornelius the Roman soldier. And so the mission field is the world. Every last person without exception, every background without prejudice or partiality. Christianity is a global, democratic, non-discriminatory religion. So that's the mission field. The second point is the message. There's a mission field, but we go with a message. It's a message sent by God announcing the text tells us good news of peace through Jesus Christ. The message is good news, and it's about peace. We are heralds of peace to the world. 
reconciliation, overcoming estrangement, peace with God, peace with our neighbors, peace with our own conscience, and ultimately the peace of the cosmos. And the message is public. It's known. It's historical. It's out in the open. If you look at the text, verse 36 says, Peter says, you know the message. Verse 37, you know what has happened. We proclaim something that has happened. And Peter pinpoints in the text the place, the province of Judea, he says. That's where it happened. He can also pinpoint the time. He says, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism of John. And then if you look at the text, he does something quite simple. He goes through the stages of Jesus' public life and ministry, beginning with his baptism at the hands of John. Now, here's something interesting about this little summary. Scholars have noted that only Mark's gospel, and Mark was Peter's disciple and Peter's preaching here, right? only Mark starts his gospel with the baptism of Jesus. And this whole summary here of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, which we have here in Acts 10, this whole summary is really a nice condensed version of the gospel of Mark. This is commonly pointed out by scholars of the book of Acts. And I point out that in God's good providence, the class we start today will be using videos based on the Gospel of Mark, right? based on this sort of summary to help prepare us to share the message. What's the message? Well, quite simply, it is Jesus and what he has done. I mean, there's an order to the message, But it's not long, and it's not complicated. At his baptism, the text says in verse 38, God anointed him with the power of the Holy Spirit. That was prophesied. We heard it in the Old Testament lesson today from Isaiah 42. He is the anointed servant of the Lord upon whom the Lord puts his spirit. And this spirit, this divine gift makes him Jesus the Christ, right? Because Christ means anointed one, the Messiah. Thus anointed, Peter tells us, he went around doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. The prophets repeatedly said that these are the kinds of things Messiah would do when he comes. He would bring healing and liberation. He would restore the broken and the bruised and liberate the oppressed. This is the message. Who Jesus is and what he did. And this is the good news. It's good because it's God's goodness enacted in our flesh. And it is news because it's public and open fact. So notice what we've already been told in the text. We've been told who and when and where and what. And we need a good dose of that kind of attention to the basic details 
if we want to tell the story well. Who? Jesus. Where? Judea. And Galilee. When? Early first century, beginning with the baptism at the hands of John. What? Spirit-empowered good deeds of healing and mercy. It's a beautiful, very short summary of Jesus' life. And it continues. It continues in the next verse, verse 39. Peter declares they killed him by hanging him on a tree. Which Deuteronomy tells us is a sign. It's a sign that Jesus bore your curse. The judgment due us. But, verse 40 says, there's a divine plan overruling human wickedness. God raised him from the dead on the third day. There it is again. It's another open, dateable event. Crucified under Pontius Pilate. Buried, raised the third day. Then what happens? Well, the apostles see him. And to demonstrate that he's not like a ghost or an apparition, he eats and drinks with him, the text says, with the apostles. After he rose from the dead. Right? One of those apostles, John, tells us in his first epistle, we touched and tasted and handled and saw the word of life. And so we have a life of Christ here, a little mini life of Christ from Peter, and we later get it from Mark. And it ends with Jesus being proclaimed the one whom God has appointed, the text says, to judge the living and the dead. There's the end of all things. There's no gospel, really, without this judgment by the one who was judged. Judgment will be by Jesus of the living and the dead. Judgment will be as universal, as impartial, as proclamation of the gospel is. So it's a sort of primitive creed, right? You can hear the echoes of what would later become the Apostles' Creed in it. He will come in glory. He will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. So, again, who is Jesus? What did he do? Right? That is our message, and we need to be good summarizers. There is a skill here, but it's a skill that everyone can attain to. It's simply the skill of being able to condense the big, fat 66 books of the Bible down to something about the size of the Apostles' Creed. We need to be people who can give an orderly account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and his coming as judge. And the text isn't finished. It says, between his resurrection and his coming as judge... We proclaim the gospel. That's the time of the church. The era of the light of Christ. See that in verse 43. And there we learn something new about the message. In verse 43, namely that this message has roots. It was promised in the prophets. All the prophets testify about him. So the whole Old Testament, the Psalms, the prophets, the wisdom literature... The historical narratives, they all point forward to this anointed Messiah. And it's part of your calling, right? Our preparation to grasp some of these prophecies. 
that the message is not only public, but it was prophetically preordained. And we know, for example, from other contexts, even in the book of Acts, right, that Paul would, for example, talk at great length about these Old Testament prophecies and the Old Testament background in the synagogues, in the public square. So not only do we need to know the story, the life, the death, the resurrection, the second coming as judge, but we do need to know something of the backstory. Otherwise, the story of Jesus is just floating in air. It wouldn't make any sense. We need the frame to bring the story into focus. And that's the fact that the prophets foretold this story. Now, that might seem a little bit daunting, but you don't need to know hundreds of Old Testament texts or dozens of types of Christ. But everyone should know a couple. Everyone should know a few. Right? Genesis 3, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Familiarize yourself with what the prophets spoke concerning Christ, because without that, you really can't tell the story. Now, did I mention we have a class starting today? I think this class will help you familiarize yourself with the Old Testament background as well. Right? What do the prophets speak of? You see this in the text, verse 43. They testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Through his name, meaning through who he is and through what he has done. He's the revelation of the name of God the Father. And through that name, you receive the forgiveness of sins. That is the why. So you now have who and what and when and where and why. In just a couple of verses. The why is so that people, without partiality or distinction, everyone who believes in him, in the Jesus foretold by the prophets, in the Jesus whose anointed life and death and resurrection and coming as judge we've just narrated, in this unique historical Jesus who paid this unspeakable cost, everyone who believes in him can have their sins pardoned and thus have communion with the living God and eternal life. This is the good news. And it unveils the heart of who God is because God is good. He desires to save sinners. And your salvation consists chiefly in this, the forgiveness of all your sins. That's the message. Finally, a few words about the missionaries. And here I mean witnesses, but I needed a third M for the outline. So, Peter says of the apostles in verse 39, we are witnesses of everything he did. So, so there's another W there, right? Who, what, when, where, why is all great, but you still need witnesses. You still need witnesses to share the news. Now, the apostles, the text makes clear, they're unique witnesses. They ate and drank with Jesus after he was raised. The church relies on their witness in its witness. But it's very important to see this. Yes, we are not apostles, 
But you know what we are? We are apostolic. Right? We are still sent into the earth with a great commission to proclaim the gospel to all nations without distinction. We're still witnesses. You're still called to be salt and light. And we're all commanded to proclaim the good news and testify. Right? So Peter's given us the life of Christ in some reform. There's another example of this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul gives it there again. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose on the third day. He was seen by witnesses. That is the apostolic testimony condensed down and every last Christian must assimilate it. It must be in your bones. It's the spine of your own story, your own narrative. It's not complicated. right? It's not too much material. And we must share it. When we share it, we trust that that same spirit that fell on Cornelius and his household right, will bring those we testify to to the same faith, to the same forgiveness of sins through the name of the same Jesus. So let me conclude. And here I'm going to exhort us on all three points of the text. So first, the mission field. There is no place and there is no person that is not on the mission field. That means Orange County, New York, Ulster County, New York, Dutchess County, New York, Putnam County. They're on the mission field. If the sun has arisen on a new day and the Lord has not returned, that means God is still gathering his people. And he's gathering them here where we are. And so we must exclude no one. And we must count no one out, right? We can tend toward this, I think, with familiar contacts. We sort of write certain people off in our heart and mind after a time. That runs completely antithetical to the whole spirit of the gospel in this text, right? We must exclude no one. We must count no one out. There are no unclean people. There are no people unfit for Westminster Church. God shows no favoritism in the gospel. It's we who must change and bend. We must become all things to all people that we might save some. This is a place for bending, for stretching. So we are on this mission field, and the only question is whether we're engaging in the mission. Secondly, the message itself. So if we're commanded to bear witness, and we are, then we need to master some, not a great deal, not greatly difficult, but we need to master some material from the prophets and from the life of Christ. Have I mentioned we have a class? It's starting today. I highly encourage this class Anyway, finally, the missionaries. Now, the missionaries, you are the missionaries. We are missionaries. But here's something to see. We never outgrow this gospel. We never outgrow it. We have to preach it to ourselves every day. And you know what else we don't do? We don't outsource it. We live by it. 
And one final reason to give ourselves to this is that we need this gospel every day. And there's nothing like sharing the gospel with another soul to cause the gospel to arise afresh in your own heart, to be reinvigorated, right? To knock the edges off our own spiritual dullness and deadness. We need our own hearts evangelized, gospelized, renewed in the joy of sins forgiven. Now, there are many other obstacles and inadequacies we feel for sure. Right? And I think the class can help with those. But remember what Paul said of his own ministry. He said this, who is adequate for these things? That feeling of inadequacy is like a basic criteria for doing this. God can make us all, whether we're fearful or weak or proud or indifferent, he can make us adequate by his grace to the mission. Right? So this text, I trust it was not bewildering. It's a simple text. But this movement that Peter is at the headwaters of, right, this sharing the good news with every person in all nations, this breaking down of every barrier, this movement shook the world. And we hope and pray that it does so again. I want to conclude by reminding you of what I said at the opening. You are baptized into this Jesus. If you are not, believe this gospel and get baptized. But for those of you who are baptized, you are baptized into this Jesus and he is on a mission. And that means you are baptized, immersed, summoned into his mission. So make yourself a messenger of the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all, judge of all, savior of all, without distinction, without partiality. Amen.